Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Thursday, July 5th, 2012, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our guest tonight is Marsha Connor, the co-author of The New Social Learning. Marsha, thanks so much for coming on the show. So happy to be here, Steve. Thanks for inviting me. Really delightful. I loved this book. We'll, we'll, I'll tell you why when we get to uh, past the intro slides. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Blackboard Collaborate, and Instructure for sponsoring, helping to sponsor Web 2.0 Labs. This is the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0. It's really fun. Uh, we actually have issued some of the a small number of the 130 crowdsourced chapters from Classroom 2.0, the book. Um, there, more are coming, and the announcement shortly sort of with details about where that is, but what a project and uh, so much fun. So five years, so grateful for everybody who's participated in a great example of what we're going to talk about tonight. Coming up, uh, we are announcing officially the Learning 2.0 conference. I don't have the final date yet, but this is part of the Department of Education's Learning 2.0, I'm sorry, the Department of Education's Connected Educator Month. And it will probably be the second week, um, the Learning 2.0 conference. I'm, I'm trying to finalize the dates as we speak, but it, probably four days. Um, just a terrific, fun, crowdsourced activity. If you haven't attended one of these virtual conferences, we, I encourage you to do so. Coming up uh, in October is our second Future of Libraries conference, thanks to San Jose State University. Um, that is two days, typically 150 sessions, just a ton of fun, as well the Global Education Conference, which runs five days, 24 hours a day. Again, all of these are free. Um, the Global Education Conference this year has um, IRON as a partner, and so where we've had in the last couple of years about 10,000 virtual attendees, we expect upwards of 20 or 30. We don't know, but whatever it is, it's going to be a blast. Um, I did want to mention that tonight, immediately following the show, Verena Thomas is doing the first um, of her digital footprint MOOCs. It's through uh, the, the MOOC.me site she and I set up. So that's immediately following this show. You'll want to go to tinyurl.digifoot12 to get the actual link to the Blackboard Collaborate room. But that should be a lot of fun. We've had about 330 people sign up in the last day to participate in that MOOC, and it's a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education on the 17th, Elliot Washer from Big Picture Learning. Can't wait to have him on the show. John Idelson on learning any portfolios. The CEO of Skillshare on the 24th. Uh, lots more on the list there. Uh, a lot of these that are in August are actually going to get sort of folded into Connected Educator Month, uh, which is perfect, including Tony Wagner at the end talking about creating innovators. I saw him speak recently uh, on this topic, and it's really fascinating. Um, lots more. Thomas Vanderark is new on the list. Uh, Denise Pope from Stanford is new. Anyway, I hope, hope there's something there that's of interest to you. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form in an MP3. The show with David Preston and his students was really fun. So they've created what they call an open learning community uh, in, in the middle of this school in Central California. And um, it's worth watching. It's, you should watch the actual Blackboard version because there is a video stream of the students and uh, a lot of fun to explore that topic. Anyway, lots there as well. So this is when we give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. 
You should now be seeing to the left of your screen uh, some icons. You're looking for the second one down. It's the star. You have to actually double click on it. But go ahead and click on the map and then in the chat you can put the time, temperature, location where you are. I know we've got Caracas. I think I saw Estonia. Australia, Georgia. I'm sure many of you are still in real heat. Wherever you are participating from, we are sure glad to have you joining us. It's really fun to have a live audience. And if you're listening to the recording, thank you so much. I know it's 3 a.m. in Estonia. I think it's early morning, 10 a.m. maybe in Australia. Lots of fun. OK, Marcia, I, I, I want to tell you why I love this book so much. Number one is I'm a huge fan of BK Books, and I'm interested that you chose to publish through them. Uh, do you want to talk about that at all? Just shortly, I'm just kind of curious as to why you'd make that choice. When ASGD approached me to write the book, I knew that they had a limited audience. And so I thought that it might be great if we partnered with a larger publisher who had uh, the reach and had fans like yours. So it's wonderful to hear that entrance into the community. And as a result of that, the publishers at ASGB contacted a number of publishers and BK was very interested. So we went out there, had a lovely talk with them, and it worked out to be a wonderful arrangement. I loved meeting them and uh, have loved being part of that community of writers. So it wasn't necessarily my intention going forward. Just knew that we wanted to find a bigger publisher than just the association. So part of what I think what makes that story interesting is that Steve Piersanti, who started BK Books, has created a culture that I think in a lot of ways mirrors much of what you've described in your book. So I think there's it, it's very nice that that's the case. I also love this book because uh, being a reader of books about social networking, you know, the great preponderance of material is around marketing. And you've clearly shifted the conversation from marketing to learning. And there's a point in the book where somebody that's like a they slap their forehead, you know, sort of recognizing this incredible opportunity to talk about learning. Thank you for doing that because I felt like I learned a lot. I'm just glad you noticed. <laughs> I was so tired of reading so many books that social media was all about marketing. I thought, wait a minute, you're missing a bigger opportunity. This is all about learning. Marketing just happens to be one of the things that people can be learning from. But clearly, the bigger message was missing from the market. And uh, that's what we tried to convey. So I'm absolutely thrilled to hear you got it. Well, I think for those of us, because the, the interview series is really about education, for those of us who are thinking about education, there's an interesting connection with business. And oftentimes, business methodologies are used in ways that don't feel healthy for education. But in the circumstance of of, I don't know if you can hear those fire trucks outside my window, but I apologize if it's too loud. Um, in the circumstance of learning, I think what's kind of fun about this is to think about the 
real importance of learning actually working in organizations. And so where learning is done well in business organizations, it feels like that could be really informative uh, to K-12 and higher ed. Well, it, it, it appears to me, at least as an outsider not working inside of a, a at least a K through 12 school system, that there is still this fear or this perception that social media is about something else. And so the more opportunities we have to mix and mingle those two conversations and for people to really realize that social media is not something new, it's something that's been going on for hundreds of years, just not these tools. The tools are really what's new here, but that we have been learning together and from one another for as long as we've been around, that the, the more opportunity and the more time that we have those conversations, take the time to talk with others about them. I think the further we will go by realizing there's something new and really exciting going on here. So that sort of informs the tension that I feel in the topic, which is that social learning isn't a new concept, but we're also using new technologies which really seem to be transforming our potential to be social and to learn socially. So how important a moment in time do you think this is? Well, I, I'm normally struggling with words because I find so much, or at least the question I'm being asked, are about how students, for example, are different today. And when I reflect on my own learning as a, as a formal student as opposed to an informal student of life, I, don't, I have some questions about how really different we are, uh, students are today than they were in our day, as it were. And what's so different really is the availability, the affordance, the opportunity we have to connect with one another at any moment. And so the big opportunity here really is the fact that um, instead of ignoring what has changed, which is the technology and the access around us, to embrace that, to be able to say, wow, we can be a connected society again. We can be full people all the time. And instead of you know, stopping doing these activities and stopping being with other people and stopping learning from one another all the time, which is what has been a forced situation for the last hundred or so years, here's our chance to revisit that and say, wait a minute, that was really about control. That was really about who was in charge. It really wasn't about learning. And let's really take this opportunity and rethink so many of those assumptions we've been living with for so long now and say, let's take this opportunity to use these tools in a smart way to get back to that humanity, get back to people learning from one another all the time. I think you do a good job in the book as well of distinguishing between a training and learning and the value that there is in um, some forms of formal training where you really need compliance and conformance and people need to learn specific material versus the engaged process of learning. Um, do you think that people have a hard time separating those two out and that it's maybe part of the narrative that's valuable? Well, for people who spend uh, a bit of time with me, they know that the sort of the diatribe I've been on for a decade or so is that learning and training or learning and teaching are not synonymous. And uh, I can even quote which dictionaries separate them out and which don't because I'm called on it so frequently. But for learning, for me at least, and, and actually for many others, not just me, it is really a taking in process. And that training or education or uh, teaching is really an outgoing process. It's what we you know, put out. 
And once we start thinking about them as separate things, if you agree with my definitions or not, that's somewhat of a separate conversation. But if we can even just recognize the difference between what we take in and what we put out, uh, we start to begin to think about what are some better ways that we can do both. As educators, what are some other ways that we can inform wider and deeper uh, groups or individuals in that conversation? And what are ways that we can take in information that more suits our styles, our preferences, our time of day, um, where we are, things like that. And that's a, that hasn't been the case in the past. So many of these topics have been lumped together. They are the same thing. It's what you do in a, either in a classroom or when you have somebody supervising the educational process. But for us to be able to, for even us as adults or the children that we work with, the children in our homes, the children that we care about so deeply, to be able to recognize and understand that there are two things going on. They're both fabulous. They're both uh, the energy that fuels our lives. And we can be doing them all the time in integrating ways, uh, that's where I personally find myself struggling and, and saying, wait a minute, you're really talking about learning or you're really talking about training. Uh, and let's all be having that conversation and really be elevating it to the point where we can do each of them better and in a more individualized way. So in the book, you do a little bit of a history of social learning. Um, I just became kind of an Albert Bandura fan this year. <laughs> but the original phrase, social learning, is probably not exactly what we're talking about, right? I'm laughing here. I'm putting my microphone back on and off so I don't worry about the echo here. Uh, that was very well worded. <laughs> How you just described that. So much of what Bandura was describing, or so many of us learned about in our graduate courses on uh, educational psychology really was a form of behaviorism. It was how uh, one person working in a way either that was acceptable to society or not accept acceptable to society was then repeated by other people, more of a mirroring uh, process. And so that is a part, sure, a part of the social learning phenomenon that we see today. Uh, I, I catch myself all the time seeing somebody tweet maybe, um, you know, I had something for lunch. And, uh, and I think to myself, oh, that actually sounds kind of good. I, maybe I want to have that also. And so in that way, it's not that different than what he was describing. But that's just such a small piece of the larger opportunity to be learning from and with people in a far larger way. Because just as likely, I could say, oh, goodness, I do not want to have that for lunch. Or that bridges to a larger conversation and really grows the opportunity to change how I'm working, change what I'm learning. And I can scaffold that to a bigger opportunity. And that was far from the types of thing that Bandura and those who were talking about social learning in the 40s really were meaning. So you entitled the book The New Social Learning. Um, there, uh, I hear Howard Rheingold talking about uh, pedagogy or peer learning. It does feel like there is kind of this magic beyond just modeling in which we're helping each other learn. And, and I'm intrigued by the parallels between students and teachers, meaning in this new environment, the teacher becomes a lead learner, 
and their own learning is also largely a part of a community of some sort where they're learning as well. Right. <laughs> That's the idea that you have a sage on a stage or somebody who knows everything in the front of the room. For any of us who, those of us who've ever been in the front of the room, no, that's not exactly accurate. It's part of the story, but it is not the punchline of the story. And so the idea that we as educators are also, we as learners, is just the tip of, of a far larger opportunity, a far more exciting story. This, Howard is one example of an educator who I uh, have the good fortune of spending some time with, and he's one of many educators who have deeply embraced the notion of bringing social tools into their classrooms, be it physical or virtual. And the how much more exciting, rich, enthusiastic they are about their education process is just it's skyrocketed because now they are learning so much more. They're learning so much in the more in the moment. They're getting feedback on things that they've never gotten feedback before, something that we had, in some cases, almost forgotten that we could get from little kids, from adults who were largely silent, and to be part of that integrative system of learning and teaching all the time is, is quite huge. Uh, let me take a break, though, for a minute and come back to something that you had said earlier. Uh, which is this notion that we ha that is so common in our society um, that there is this there are times when it is best for someone to be delivering what is to be learned and while of course especially in the corporate world where there's the silly notion of compliance training I say silly just because how it's gotten there. Uh, that's the silly part. I, it's not that the topics are unimportant for people to be learning, but the process itself is, is a little nutty. Um, and I remember learning CPR, actually been teaching first aid many times, and it wouldn't be the same. And I, I don't believe it would be as effective if it were all peer learning in that sort of way. So sure, I accept that there are some things that are best um, done in a uh, let me tell you sort of way. But those are very small. And this has been my biggest learning personally through this process is that all, there are so many times that I thought that that was, there are a lot of those. And over the years of writing the book and getting, leading up to writing the book, I've just discovered that there are fewer and fewer. And the number of people in a room of all ages, no matter what room you're in, physical or virtual, that have expertise that can contribute to the learning, the better. And I just, I challenge everyone, I challenge you, I challenge people listening uh, today to really ask that question. What more could we learn? What bigger could we learn? What deeper could we learn if this, there was more of that peer stuff going on? If there was more sharing of experiences, of stories, of connections that could be being made um, in those moments that we thought in the past were we're best left for the experts to be telling us about. You know, as you're speaking, something occurred to me. You know, it occurred to me that you know often the medical profession is used in, as an example of where it's really important to have um, you know highly precise and specific learning. Um, but it would almost seem as though there's also maybe an age differentiation there that. You, you would want to introduce that at an appropriate time after the engagement and kind of um, 
excitement of learning was developed in more natural ways. Does that make sense? Sure. We're actually seeing some of the most progressive and, I think, interesting uh, social learning experiments or exercises happening within medical schools, though. So the idea of knowledge transfer is not always the same. And so the idea of reading something in a book and then having a conversation about it is a fairly tried and true and effective method for people to be learning you know, if they're able to be understanding the material and be reading at that level. Um, and so we're, so we're even beginning to see in places like medical schools uh, a little bit broader of thinking of what is learning, what is taking in of information, and what is deeply seeding that new information into our bones, into our hearts into our processes that allow us to do something different and better going forward. One of the phrases you use in the book that really stuck with me was that this is not social in the same way that a party is. I'm trying to remember the exact context of the quote, but I really liked it because it, um, I actually tend to be an introvert, but my use of social media while often alone or at times that are convenient for me, still really significantly informs what I do. Did I, did I get that in context, or do you want to explain it? Yes, you very much got that in context. Um, I've, each of the chapters of the book, for those of you who haven't read it, include a number of uh, criticisms or uh, challenges that we as authors receive on a regular basis, and that list for me is a very long one. Well, it's not this or it's not that, and, and we just try to address those issues straight out and say, well, here's maybe a different way of looking at it, and one of the most common ones that I was hearing early on when we wrote that uh, was that it's really not social. It's not that you go in, it's not like a party, it could be happening uh, by yourself in a dark room. And for so many people, especially relationship-oriented people, that just doesn't feel social to them. And that's okay. The idea is that it's from and with other people, even if they're far away, even if we can't see them, even if we can't um, feel that presence with them, it still has elements of being social, but it's a different sort of social than we have thought about in the past. One of the examples I have in the book and what I cite when I speak often is one of my favorite examples from the Mayo Clinic where a very large grant actually was given to the Mayo Clinic after a radiologist in a physically dark room uh, was looking at an x-ray and thinking to himself, I don't know what that is. And I'm at the Mayo Clinic. I'm supposed to know the answer to all these questions. There is probably someone in this facility who knows that. Let me send out a, the equivalent in there using an internal social network. Uh, let me send out the equivalent of a tweet and see if anybody does. And, and no one quickly was able to answer it, though someone did over time. But the person who did answer quickly replied back, I don't know the answer, but wouldn't this be an interesting thing to study to find out what we could do to connect people in these dark lab rooms around our facility, around our many facilities around the country, around the world, to be able to surface all the answers that we need at the moment of need. And as I say, as a result, they got a very large grant for this project to research it, to really understand it, to do better at it. And the two never met until the check arrived which was months and months later. Um, you know, big facility, but they were able to be 
in, in what we could all describe as an interaction, as learning from one another, from working together, creating a proposal, sending this off. Uh, and it was in these dark rooms, but it was all social, just in a very different way than, as you said, in a party, we imagine. So having said that, we just got back from a large conference called ISTE, which is the um, big national educational technology conference held each year. And we've started holding uh, what we call unplugged events. They're physical events with all the people that we've met virtually that have much less structure. And, and we're, we're going to get to that as part of the book. But uh, I, I wasn't thinking about that as I was saying that, because in fact, in some ways, the media has actually informed better social interactions face-to-face. -face. Sure, we get to meet each other. We get to get all that silly stuff that sometimes feels that way taken care of before we get to meet in person. You feel like you know someone. You have a sense of them. You have a place to start. Steve, I too am very much an introvert. I'm an outgoing introvert. Um, I enjoy the experience of talking to other people, but in large part, it's draining for me. And to be able to get a sense of a person and understand their priorities and see what they care about and what they're talking about before I have to meet them in person makes that interaction when I do meet them so much easier and so much richer because we can begin at a place that's meaningful to us as opposed to remembering to cover some of the small chit chat that allows us to get to that place. That's already taken care of and it's a wonderful place to start. So I want to make a connection between two other phrases you use in, in the book. One is this idea of a collective mind. And it felt to me like the phrase, load the boat, was actually sort of encouraging us to, to proactively create that collective mind. Um, do you want to tell the story of where that phrase comes from? Um, well, I. There are, there are many uh, similar examples of load the boat, if that's either bench strength or, uh, say, in that case, a medical school where everybody, all the resources that you need in a hospital to be able to have on a specific case. Uh, it's having the people around you, either physically or virtually, that are helpful to you at the moment of need that really is so powerful. The, the line that I use personally very often is that I keep what I know in my friends' heads. And it's really the idea that I may not remember right now, but I do know who I learned that from, and I can contact them easily and be able to get that at that moment of need. That is that shared mind, that hive mind concept. And it's, it, it harkens back very much so to uh, the school environment where we ask students to close their books and to detach from the community around them. Sure, we need that mental furniture. We need that scaffolding ourselves to be able to be independent, to be able to do important things. But how much bigger and richer and more valuable is that other information that we can reach fairly easily? And if we have that structure that we can reach it at that moment of need that makes our lives, our work, our experiences uh, that much more useful and that much more relevant to the organizations that we work for and work with. The uh, examples you give, many of them from businesses, 
kind of led me to thinking about the power shift that's taking place. Um, you know, in large part because institutions now really benefit from bringing their members or their employees together rather than dictating things from top down. I see companies pushing back on that, but I actually see them pushing back in a different way than schools. It felt to me like companies will um, adopt the language but not want to actually give up the control. And uh, it seems like schools more often than not just completely block, not even adopting the language. Do you have some sense of how big a movement this is in business, how many are actually sort of proactively adopting, and, and how many are still resisting? Uh, and there are at least, there's at least one organization that every single year does a sort of benchmarking of where we are in terms of internal social networks, the intentional bringing in of tools that are enterprise ready. and. Uh, Though this past year we saw a little bit of an uptick, it was at about 30% two years ago. And what's interesting is the year before that it was about 35%. So it actually went down a little bit, and then we're noticing it going up again. Uh, but the so it, we're still early on in the adoption curve. That's what I always try to point out to organizations. If, if they're not doing it, it's not like everybody is doing this. It's still fairly early on partially because of the control issues that you mentioned, partially because of fear and compliance issues. Um, but it is inevitable. It's, uh, I personally didn't have a telephone on my desk when I joined the world of work. And soon enough, you couldn't imagine anybody not having a telephone on their desk. Interestingly enough, we're actually seeing some corporations are not having telephones again uh, because so many people have their own. But that's not here nor there. It's the idea that it, it's inevitable. It's going to be happening. The reason I explain it this way is to say that when I speak to corporate executives, which I do for some of the world's largest organizations, I say something very uh, straight up. And that is, if you are blocking this from your employees, or you're resisting, or you're saying this isn't going to happen, you're just fooling yourself. Your employees have access to these technologies in their pockets and purses today. And they're going to be using it today to be doing the work that they need to do today with or without your approval. And wouldn't it make more sense to be able to have a network where they could be do that easily and with other people within their organization as opposed to doing this out on the public web? This is your choice. You know, to those corporate executives, this is your choice. But don't believe for a minute that it's not happening today. I explained this ironically at the uh, at a defense organization about a year ago. And as I'm saying these words, I was remembering that I had actually checked in all of my devices as I walked through the metal detector in the building. I had turned over my computer and my cell phone and everything, and I said, and I explained this whole thing. I said, in most organizations, I realize this isn't happening here, however. Your people can't be doing this because you've, you know, you've made them put them in lockers at the entrance. And I went back out to my car after I spoke, and sitting in the cars, on either side of me were employees from this defense organization using their cell phones to do what they needed to do. They've left work. 
And so even in this organization that had physically clamped down and had stopped this and it had controlled it, the people were still doing what they needed to do because we now know we can using those tools. That reminds me of the students who have to pay to store their cell phones in locker trucks before they enter the schoolroom. Um, This, uh, the, the portrait you've portrayed of the percentage of adoption puts students in a very interesting position, right? Because some students will, will move into work environments in which the company will welcome the, the kind of independence and collective mind building. But others may move into companies that don't want that. Do you, how, how do you, what do you say to a student who says, you know, how should I prepare for my work life? Uh, I should say that first, to the extent that you can understand how these tools can be useful for doing your job, you still can do that. Because you can do that at home, you can do that on your break, you can do that in your car if your organization isn't going to support that. So don't just think of these tools as being just to connect to your friends. And even when you are connected to your friends, you can still get work done. And that's really kind of a hard thing for some students to think about. In fact, one of the reasons that this book does not say we need to do this because of the new millennials or the, you know, the new students and you know, the new people in our workplace, I, I actually personally uh, don't find it to be, say, so divided upon generation. I see it more on age and demographics and a couple of other things. Um, but I really push back because so many corporations I work with, the people who are, if not the most resistant, but some of the most resistant are some of the younger people, the new entrants into the workforce of using social media tools for work because they view them as something that you do for, with your friends. They don't think of them as something that you do with work. So that big leap we can do is help them see how they can do this with work and how those friends are a part of their extended network and how I'm not asking you to ask your friends to do your work for you or to you know, step over any sort of line, but maybe some of them have some great ideas that you can use and there doesn't need to be those hard and fast boundaries. And then to be helping your workplace, if they are resistant to these tools, to see how they can be valuable. Instead of making fun of them and saying, I can't believe you don't use this, instead say, let me show you how you can use this. Let me show you how I'm doing this. And take on that role of educator, not just learner. I don't recall you mentioning this in the book, but it, it also feels as though these tools could potentially fuel a real renaissance in entrepreneurial activity. Have you seen that? Uh, well, we, we surely see the uptick of new businesses being started. We see younger people seeing opportunities and can barely easily because iPhone apps aren't that difficult to create and uh, because we now have these social networks to be able to get the marketing out fairly quickly that we do see them used somewhat because of crowdsourcing, because of say the ease of the tools and things like that. Uh, we see more and more of people feeling comfortable being participants in that entrepreneurial set 
in the and, and that's obviously due to other reasons too. There are fewer jobs. There's uh, you know a number of different reasons. And so yes, we do see them there, um, and we see them as an opportunity to connect with people. The one of the reasons I, I, I have such resistance to saying all these young people do it this way uh, is simply because what really is new and innovative and wonderful is that people are able to connect with their past and their future in a way that has never been they've never been able to do easily before. And so when you see one of maybe your former colleagues, one of your former classmates who's creating something new, you don't have to think to yourself, well, I can never do that until I'm such and such age. You see that it can happen today. You see young people creating amazing things today. And so your availability, your openness to see that you can do that too is greater than it ever has before. Uh, when we really have this perception, oh, I've got to put in my time and then I can work for myself. Well, now we can see that that's not necessarily the case, for good and for bad, I should say. So one of the hardest things in education is to measure the um, influence or ability of someone who's highly collaborative. Uh, from from K-12, especially then into higher ed, where oftentimes uh, certain kinds of collaboration just aren't fostered because of the tenure system. Are, are you learning any lessons in the business world about how to measure certain capabilities that, that lead people to be good at bringing together the collective mind that might inform how we think about that in education? Well, let me turn the question a little bit on its head. Uh, if I learned valuable lessons, to say my biggest advice when it comes to how to work in this new collaborative social mind, however you want to describe it way, is not additive. It's not doing more things. It's not having new skills. It's not adding more to our already very, very busy lives. It's looking at all the things that are keeping us from working in a natural human way. And so many of the systems in higher ed, as well as the whole school system, as well as the corporate world for that matter, are preventing us from being able to work in these sorts of ways. There's rules, there's norms, there's conventions, there's acceptable practices. We can go down the list where this isn't acceptable or this isn't welcomed. And what I urge everyone to do is instead of thinking about all the new things you aren't doing yet, to be thinking of what you, what are the obstacles in your path, and to be figuring out and systematically removing them. If that's going to other people and saying, do we really need this policy anymore? Does it really fit? Or is there a way that we can really just sort of work around it? But to figure out what are the things keeping us from working. From a very, very young age, we work and learn together. And at about seven and a half, so many kids already have been stuffed into desk drawers, it feels like, in terms of believing that it's a okay for them to continue a conversation. And there really needs to be a lot of unbundling, a lot of unlayering of some of those practices and saying that you have these capabilities. They haven't died. They've just been squashed down for so long. And as adults, we're in that same situation. But let's start removing them 
And that's what I've learned the most in the corporate world, where we think these are not people who are ever going to be collaborative or ever innovative. And as soon as we start removing those obstacles, that's just not what we see. We see people coming back to life in ways that we never, ever believe is possible. And we start seeing people contributing to organizations where they haven't contributed in 30 years, they have been collecting paychecks. And it's absolutely remarkable. It just involves removing all those things, keeping them from being able to work in those ways. And that so many people have over the years accepted that somebody else is in control here. And the more of those things we can remove from their path, the more open people are to pitch in, contribute, and collaborate in really amazing ways. I love that answer. And I want to push it one degree further by going into your sections on the specific um, areas, the, the first one being online communities. Because it feels to me that they, there is an art to the kind of behavior that a community leader provides that, that elicits and encourages participation. Uh, someone who tends to be highly attuned to the social or emotional needs of others. And it feels like that's a skill that's hard to quantify. But when you see it, you say, boy, that really made a difference in, in a particular community. Sure, those are people who, for whatever reason, didn't get stuff in their desk drawers in second grade. <laughs> I don't mean to be so flip about it, but I have a whole series of questions I ask people uh, and say, so what happened to you at about the age of you know, nine that kept you from just accepting the fact this is the way it is? And it, it's very, very consistent that they, each person says, how did you know that? And I say, well, I've been doing this for a while. And that there are just some people who, for whatever reason, um, you know, I. These aren't things that you can really cultivate specifically, but they have happened, and they, you know, so they, they didn't get that way. Um, and what happens, though, is that a lot of those people then don't realize that they need to actively help remove those obstacles in other people's paths. They think, well, I can do it, so can you. Mm, it doesn't really work that way. There are a lot of people who have really deeply nested uh, fears, concerns, habits that keep them from participating, and so it becomes that. Uh, ambassadors, that community manager's role to, to help them unbundle and unwind in that way. So a lot of communities have formed in education. There's been a tremendous amount of peer professional development. Um, I'll often talk to audiences and say, you know, it's becoming very clear to me that you are learning more from your peers than you are from the professional training that you get. As those communities get built, there are many that don't seem to get off the ground, and, and, and I frequently get asked, you know, uh, how do you help a community get started? I think you address this really well, and I also think there's a little bit of an art involved to um, building a community. What kind of advice do you give people who say they want to start a community, either for their company or for a group? Same advice I'm going to give for any sort of social gathering, and that is to look where you have today. I think it's a mistake for us to begin by the idea of creating something new. And that is to say, where are those communities of practice already? Where are people naturally gravitating? Now, how can we make them bigger, wider, deeper, more interesting? 
but at least start be, to begin by thinking about where there is that energy and momentum already, and then thinking about how tools can be used to extend and expand that. So that's always one of the places I begin. Instead of saying, well, let's start on this esoteric topic that no one has ever thought to gather about before, and I see that happening all the time in higher ed. Um, there's a reason that no one is joined around that particular topic. Maybe it's not one that you really care to be that excited about. So that, that's, I think, an important one. See where the energy is already and learn from that experience and then splinter off, build special interest groups from those places. Um, so that's one. Another is to identify a core group of people who are intentionally committed to removing some of those obstacles in people's paths to be talking about these things. And I often talk about the, the cheerleaders in our spaces. And those cheerleaders are not just there to say, rah, rah, you're doing it, you're doing it, that's great. Uh, I'm, say I'm, I'm definitely an anti-behaviorist, so that's not my kind of tea. But part of their role is to be modeling different sorts of behaviors. And that's encouragement and that's support. And that's just asking good questions. And that's clearing out the muck. I often call those people gardeners as opposed to community managers. Because it really is a matter of tilling the ground and planting seeds and watering them and making sure there's enough sunshine and pulling out the weeds and realizing when uh, it's time to put the leaves over the community and for you to move on to the next one. And so those are the sorts of roles that I think are very, very important. And then there really is one of recognizing that there is this natural evolution. We're never going to see 100% participation, that a lot of those 10% you know, of active community member numbers that have existed throughout anthropology for a very long time, we see those in, in online communities too and that lurking isn't a bad thing. And there's a, you know, a whole bunch of different layers that say this, there, there, it's not so much an art, but there's something that has to be attended to and recognize that how we work online isn't all that different from how we work in person. You say that lurking or legitimate peripheral participation is okay, but at the very beginning of the book you have these playground rules that require that you participate. How do you reconcile the two? Uh, so those of you who haven't seen the playground rules, I have them on my website. And Steve, I'll make sure that you have a list of them. You can get to everybody if that would be easier, too. Uh, and that is how you participate is quite different. And uh, just logging into a website and actually never reading anything is very different than going in and looking around and, and, and learning. And for me, that is very much participation. There's so many conversations I've learned over the years uh, from that I have not been in active participation. Maybe no one has ever heard my voice, but I took so much out. And then I went and I had a conversation on my own time with someone else about it. And that is incredibly valuable. And to me, that is also active participation, but just in a very different way than so many communities measure that participation. So we're not going to have time to get to everything, but I do want to kind of quickly go through some of the other concepts in the book. One is this sharing stories, and in particular video. And to me, this seems like it's the great counter-argument to the Khan Academy or the best lecture videos. Some of the best stories in education that we have are, say, when upperclassmen film themselves in a language situation that then becomes the learning 
vehicle for the lower class men and women, in part because they're seeing their peers and people they know speaking French in a bakery in Paris, um, but also because there's a creation process involved. Are you finding the same thing in business that, that it's not the top quality, but it's the actual act of participation from people you know that makes those stories so compelling? I'm going to say it's both. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a huge part of it. But again, we, we each learn quite differently from one another. I, I mean, in, in the big scheme of things, we have the same senses. We have, so many of us have gone through the same sorts of school systems, so our habits are, are quite similar. Um, but I do really wonderfully from listening to books on tape, for example, and I don't necessarily get that much from a video, whereas somebody else really, that they need to have that full sensory experience to be able to take it in. So I'm, to me, the big message here is the variety and the meeting your individual needs versus um, the fact that you participate. I mean, we all know that learning by doing is the most effective way of getting that information into our bones. And so the fact of putting together that video or um, being a participant in somebody else's video is a very enriching experience. Uh, but that's, again, going back to that learning by doing aspect of it. It's not so much that it is that video. If you wrote the paper or you created that iPad, iPod, um, that podcast, that's the learning by doing aspects that are that are quite valuable. And I, I'm just I'm less focused on the technology itself. I'd say that even since writing this, uh, the number of times I even say in a week that let's not forget, Facebook will not be around in ten years. I mean that seems like heresy to many people that I say that to, but none of the technologies that we're using today will be as we as they are today, even in three years. Twitter is wildly different than it was just a few years ago. Facebook is wildly different than it was when I began you know, many, many years ago. And the, this is all an iterative process, and it's all becoming more natural, and that's a wonderful thing, the more it's embedded and participant you know, part of our lives. Um, let, you know, I, again, I don't so much focus as much on the technology as what it allows us to do. So I have more questions, but we're going to leave them uh, because uh, this is now the moment we switch to Q&A. There's been a very active chat. Uh, if it's been hard for you to follow the chat, I apologize. I, I should have reminded the participants. You can actually grab that chat box and pull it out and make it larger. It'll be easier to read. I've tried to follow a lot of that chat, but I, it's hard for me to do so while I'm um, participating. So if you've asked a question that you would like to ask Marsha, you can either put it in the chat again, or you can raise your hand, and I'll give you the microphone. The, to raise your hand, you click on the third icon over in the participant window. And, and I'll kind of feed some things while we're waiting for questions to come in. Uh, here we go from Elizabeth. Without having read the book, do you address privacy issues that exist when utilizing social media for instruction in higher ed, including possible FERPA violations? I know the answer is no, but have you thought about that maybe? Uh, have I personally thought about it? This is not a book that is written specifically for uh, the education world, meaning the higher education world or the school world. It's specifically written for the business community. And so while we do talk about privacy issues um, amongst in between colleagues in a work setting, uh, we don't address specifically those that are going on in a in school setting. So uh, 
have I thought about it to the extent that I could ask the question and can point people to resources because my brain is shared in other people's heads? Um, yes, I do. But it's a, not in this particular book because, um, it, it, frankly, when we started writing the book, there wasn't very much interest in the higher ed community. Uh, but we were beginning to see a lot more interest in the business community. And that's where my background is. That's where I spend most of my, my time. The chapter on um, the chapters on micro sharing and growing collective intelligence, sort of wiki related kind of topics, and even the immersive environments, they could have been in an education book. Sure, I'm I'm a fellow at a business school, and so I I spend time in a corporate in a higher ed environment. So I've seen many of those same sort of things played out. Uh, I just my experience has been that the the school communities are far more open to hearing what's going on in, in business than businesses interested in hearing what go, goes on in schools, and so it made more sense to write it from that perspective. Good, Rodney. I, I did mention the MOOC uh, at the beginning of the show, and I have a slide for it at the end of the show. Uh, Max asks, "Do you agree with the concept of digital natives and digital immigrants?" Um, Personally, uh, for me, it is a matter of age, as, as Max also asked. Uh, so thank you. I, I hadn't seen the chat conversation before. Uh, that when I reflect personally on what was going on, I happened to join Microsoft when I was in my early 20s as an employee, uh, which is a long, long, long time ago. And in that particular sense, I had access to some really amazing community and social technologies a long time ago. and so. It wasn't as though I'm an old timer in that sort of way. I've been using them for 30 years. And that's why I find that to be the exact same case, uh, is that it really has to do with our age, our perception of the world, and, and frankly, how long ago we were stuffed into a drawer is, is the example I, I use a lot. So uh, again, if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand and I can give you the microphone or you can put the question in the chat. Um, I loved your uh, equation of micro-sharing with smoke signals and Seinfeld clips. <laughs> I thought that was delightful. Um, and those of us I'm who do attend conferences. No, I thought it was fun. Um, so uh, Tim makes the point that it's often a, a case of how open a person is to new learning. And of course, Peggy George, who responds right afterwards, is sort of the great example of this retired school principal who is more proactive in, in social media than probably anybody I know. Um, Google Docs seem to me to, to have really opened the door to collaborative work more than wikis did. Has that been true in business as well? Is this where I say on record how I feel about Google Docs? <laughs> Um, I have to admit, personally, neither wikis or Google Docs are my favorite way to collaborate. I just find them to be so uh, document dependent that it seems very uh, dissimilar to how my brain works and how learning happens for me personally. Uh, so in terms of access, yes, I think they're incredibly accessible and uh, you know, Google is, uh, is intentional trying to make them accessible to so many people. Uh, but I think that we, we're far from having something that feels intuitive and comfortable. Uh, and you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get there in the not too distant future. Um, I, I, wanna, I, I Actually, I did notice Tim's comment earlier about uh, disagreeing that it's uh, 
that it's all a matter of age. I, 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 I didn't. I, I hope I did not imply that it's that when we are younger we can do one way and when we're older we can do something else. That, that's not my intention. I completely agree it's a matter of how open a person is to new learning. And it's not even a cognitive open to it. It's just being comfortable in that place of not knowing. And for so many people, that place stopped somewhere in their 20s, that they felt more open to not knowing when they were younger and as they got older they felt like they should know. But that's not across the board. There are many people of all ages who really embrace the learning and that curiosity throughout all of their lives. And the fact that some of them had technology available to them at very important ages allowed them to feel more like was described as a more immigrant or, or uh, digital native. So I, I'm, I'm all in favor of how long um, and how open and curious people are at all ages and how we can help return people who are not at that place in their lives now to that place where they can see that they can get so many questions answered and it's okay to not know all the answers. You have a whole chapter on immersive environments in gaming. While gaming is really getting some currency in the educational conversations, Immersive environments seem to have kind of fallen off the main conversations. Um, have you got a sense of why that might be? Other than just they're so bad? <laughs> I just find that they're just so clunky. I mean, some of the, the really quite amazing games today, you can almost not believe that they were drawn, that they aren't really the videoing of people and so many of the immersive environments, the second lives of the world, it just seems so phony looking. And so I think people are just getting more accustomed to expecting a higher level of reality or realisticness. And so the reason that we kept the, because that was really happening actually as we were writing that chapter two of the, about the immersive environments, the reason we kept it in was to say that the qualities and the capabilities of being able to have augmented reality, for example, which we're getting to really see an uptick in right now, that the concepts there will just be replaced by better tools and technologies. And I think we'll see a real resurgence, um, a, a real acceleration in that area. But it's the concepts that are there. It's just some of those tools themselves, some of the early tools were just pretty darn convoluted. And, uh, and that change will make all the difference. So we've been talking with Marsha Connor. Her book is The New Social Learning, A Guide to Transforming Organizations Through Social Media. This is a book really for the business market, but I loved it in terms of thinking about education. And Marcia, thank you so much for coming on. Thrilled, thrilled to be here. This was a picture from our Unplugged Activities at ISTE. For those of you who are interested, the um, Digital Footprint MOOC is starting tonight, immediately following the show, but in a different Illuminate Blackboard Collaborate room. So you can go to tinyurl.com, digifoot12. And then coming up, not next week, but the week after, Elliot Washer on Big Picture Learning. Marsha, thanks. I know you didn't have power. You're scrambling. You've been very thoughtful to come on.
I'm happy to be here. I'm all about the curiosity and the learning and having more people to be learning with. So I encourage everybody. I, I know that somebody earlier posted my the URL to my own website. Um, I'm very accessible online. Please send me a tweet, a message on Facebook, through email, whatever works for you. And I'm happy to answer questions and be able to provide any assistance I can. And for the person who's writing, uh, doing their thesis on the uh, privacy, I'd be happy to answer questions there. But I'd also welcome learning from you so I can point others to you over time. Really fun to make a connection with you. Thanks so much again. Thanks, everybody, for coming on the show. Sure appreciate your taking the time to do so. Depending on where you are in the world, have a great day or night. Bye now. Bye-bye.